let, let me read to you a testimony of a person a uh, number of hundreds of years back who had an intimate relationship and experience with God, kind of a, a, a union of his soul with God's, that, that he came and, and found great enjoyment of God. Here's what he writes. Once as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place as my manner commonly had been to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love, meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near, I can judge, about an hour, which kept me the greater part of time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not, otherwise how to express emptied, annihilated, to lie in the dust, and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with the divine and heavenly purity. I have several other times had such views, very much of the same nature, which had the same effects. This is testimony from Jonathan Edwards of him being caught up and experiencing and enjoying this great God that we serve. This is not an experience that many of us have, but, but it's an experience that we're called to, to long for and to seek and to enjoy. You know where we are in Isaiah now. We're at the end of uh, the second book or the second part of Isaiah. So Isaiah, the first part in chapters 1 to 39, it ended in a terrible way. Exile of Judah. They had failed. They had failed in faithlessness. It was a, a downward spiral. All 39 all 39 chapters are just this downward spiral, faithlessness after faithlessness, running after other gods. And then at the end of 39, you have in chapter 40 this beautiful kind of intrusion of God where he tells Isaiah, go, comfort, comfort my people. They're about to be sent to exile, and God's sending a comforter, Isaiah. Now, in chapters 40 to 55, the second part of his book, it's zeroing in on this servant, a servant who's going to deliver these people who are in exile, who are in sin. And, and, and you see it in 42 and 49 and 50. And then we saw last week that beautiful chapter, 53, where we see the suffering servant and, and that upon this suffering servant is going to be our sin and our shame and our guilt. And he's going to pay the price that we incurred before God so that we might be redeemed from exile. I mean, I mean, this is the perfect act of redemption accomplished for us. And then in chapter 54, if you were to continue reading, you'd see that he begins to articulate the blessings of this salvation. And then in 55, our passage, now the announcement goes forth to the world. This is what this suffering servant has accomplished. Here are the blessings of salvation, and now proclaim it to the nations. So, so we're going to see this invitation of God to be in union with him, much as Edwards gave great word to. So turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 55, and I'm going to read the whole passage in one sitting, 
I won't go through it piece by piece like I did last week, but in one sitting, 55, 1 to 13. <clears throat> this is God speaking to, really, the world. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come. Buy and eat, come. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that you shall not be cut off. Folks, this is God hosting a party. And, and, and what I want you to see here, and I'm going to look at this in four pieces. One is just the nature of the invitation. What is he inviting us to, actually? What is the nature of this invitation? And then what is this invitation grounded on? How can he make this invitation to us? Are we, is it based upon our worthiness? So what's the ground of the invitation? And then thirdly, we're going to look at how do we respond to this invitation? How do we respond to it? And then last, the assurance, I would even say inducements or the, or the pull that God is giving so that you will respond to the invitation. There's hope. There's a kindness, a gentleness of God calling us to respond to his invitation. So those are the four parts. The first one, though, the nature of the invitation. I think sometimes we miss this. Look with me back at the first verse. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He was no money, come, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He says, eat what is good, delight yourselves in, in, in rich food. I mean, there's this invitation that we see to come to this feast, that God's hosting a feast. And, and this feast has all the delicacies that you can imagine. He's asking us to come. He's using these pictures of, of wine and milk. You know, wine refreshes the soul and milk strengthens the body and wine gladdens the heart. These are things that are associated with a party, a, a, a jubilation, a, just a celebration of things. Now, obviously, I, I don't think he's just simply speaking about having a party. You can go to the most extravagant feast and be hungry within a day. I think there's something more going on here, and you kind of see it using the same language. He says this, he says, um, listen diligently to me, incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. 
In other words, God is inviting us to himself. God's inviting us into an intimate, bold union with God. God is offering us the privileges and the blessings of being associated with God, the, the, the forgiveness, the, the, the reconciliation, the restoring, the love, the acceptance with God. God is offering us these things. I think you would agree with me that we have probably trivialized this idea of being with God. We kind of shrink wrap it down to this idea of heaven. And we look at heaven when we describe heaven, and, and the first place many of our minds go to when we think about heaven is we think of no pain, no sorrow. We think of our bodies being patched up. We think of being with friends that we've known before that have gone ahead of us. We think about maybe golf courses and, and beach resorts, and, and we really kind of just look at heaven, being with God as an amped-up earthly life. The earthly life I never had, I'll have there. And, and I think the, um, in fact, many of us might delight in heaven only because we despair about the alternative. And we're confronted with that question that J.C. Rowell asked, which is, if if Jesus wasn't in heaven, would you want to go there? Many of us would say, well, yeah, I don't want to go to hell. I'd rather go there. Not even realizing that there is no heaven apart from God. It's union with God. That's what he's inviting us to. Do you, do you even want this? Is this even on your top five needs? T- to, to be with God in a union. I, I mean, d- does that, is that something you desire? Is that something you crave? Is that something you long for? I mean, can you pray with a psalmist that says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so many of us, I think, are satisfied with so little compared. What God is offering us is union with him to come to God. And, and to be in an intimate relationship with him. Now, now that's the host inviting us to himself. Let's look at the guest list just for a second. If you look back with me at 1 and 2, he says, Come everyone who thirsts. He's inviting the thirsty. He's inviting he, ha- who, he who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. I mean, God is appealing here to the thirsty, the broken. Now keep in mind, he's speaking to people in exile. They've been taken out of Judah. They've been transported across the Fertile Crescent to Babylon. They've lost their lands. They've lost their homes. They've lost their family. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're depressed. He's speaking to people that are clearly broken. They've tried and tried. They can't get out of the hole they've made for themselves. Their sin put them there, and now they're wallowing in it, and they're just... They have nothing to bring to the table. God is making an invitation to people that have no money, that have no hope. They're broken in despair. He says, come without money. The grace that God is offering to us is free. There's nothing, there's nothing that you need to have to be able to accept this invitation. It is without money. But he also says it's without cost. Now, that doesn't mean it's cheap. It simply implies that the bill's already been paid for. You have no cost to pay because it's been paid. And and that brings you back to Isaiah 53, how God paid the price through the Son who bore the sin and the shame and the guilt. 
So this invitation, for those of you who feel so unworthy, the invitation's for you. The invitation is, you have no money, you have no hope, you've got nothing to bring to God, you're just broken down in despair. He's inviting you, come to me, that your soul may live. But there's another group he's speaking to. I I think this is more, I think we fit in verse 2 a little more than we fit in verse 1. Look at 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? In other words, there's some people that obviously have money. They're buying their own bread. They're buying their own milk. They're buying their own wine. I mean, they've got capacities and opportunities to labor. I mean, they're working hard at life. They're climbing up the ladder. I mean, they're, they're doing all that they need to be doing. They've got dreams. They've got goals, and they're going after them. And yet God is challenging us, saying, what are you going after? I mean, do they satisfy? Do they meet the promises that they make to you? When you see something, it becomes the object of your affection, and you begin to pursue it. You have an idea that that's going to get me joy and happiness. Does it? That's what he's asking. I mean, does it satisfy? See, this is a glory. The nature of this invitation is to all people. Those who are broken and without hope, he's saying, come. I mean, aren't you tired of chasing it? Aren't you tired of just wallowing in it? And God is saying, come to me. You don't need anything but your need. But he's also speaking to those of us who are more affluent, more comfortable. We are pursuing so hard happiness. We are pursuing the job, the career, or trying to, as Ray prayed, exercise control, or the possessions, or the, or the physical pleasures, or we want a life that we've never had, and that becomes the object. I mean, in, if you could be honest with me, don't you know, I mean, would you admit that it doesn't satisfy? I mean, doesn't it seem to always, when you finally get to that rung, aren't you thinking, yeah, the view's not like what I thought it would be. It just isn't as satisfying as I hoped. You get the raise, you get the promotion, you get the adulation, you get the encouragement. But what are you thinking shortly thereafter? I've got to climb up another rung. I mean, here's the problem. As you get older, the options get fewer. You've got less rungs. You get less opportunities. And, and I'll tell you, you, you make a life of pursuing it, you'll, you'll, you'll wake up one day old, tired, frustrated, without hope. In fact, uh, some of you probably have watched that movie, The Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire, um, back Eric Little and running and, and giving up his passion to run, to, to worship on Sunday. He's a great example of faith, but, but he, he loved to run. He senses God's pleasure, and his competitor in the match uh, speaks about his goals and his purposes and his pursuits. And he says this, when he runs at least, he runs because he must. He doesn't do it because he loves it. Here's what he says. I'm more of an addict. He says this, before, right before running the Olympic, the 100-meter event, he says, contentment, I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and don't even know what it is I'm chasing. He says, I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 loose with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. He runs the 100 meters, but will I? It's, just, it's a picture of our time. In fact, one author said, achievement is the alcohol of our time, the success, the pursuit. The nature of this invitation is for you to stop pursuing the things of the world and to turn and to pursue God, to seek him while he may be found. But that's the nature of the invitation. It's a gracious invitation. God is so 
is so gracious. This isn't him sending some servant to invite you. This is God inviting you. But, but let me explain to you the, the ground of this invitation, why he can make it. Look with me in 3 and 4 and 5. He says, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love of David. Now, now you, you know what a covenant is. A covenant is like when you get married. It's a promise. It's a commitment. You are agreeing to enter into a relationship, and you are binding yourself to it. And that's what God's doing here. God's saying, I'm going to make with you a covenant. I'm going to enter into a relationship with you, and it's going to be a binding relationship. Now, notice that there's a lot of covenants in the Bible, of course. There's the covenant with Adam and the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. But he references David here. Why? Well, there's a covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in verses 12 and 16 in particular, but really the first half of the chapter. And he says, David, I'm going to bring forth from you a son and your son will establish a kingdom that will be everlasting and it will be peaceful and it will be a glorious kingdom. and It will never end. That's quite a promise. That's quite a covenant. God's binding himself to David, saying, I'm going to do this. Now, of course, you know why he had to do it. The first kingdom, so Adam and Eve created, God established them, vice regents gave them a kingdom. They rebelled against God. The whole kingdom went into confusion. And, and, and you have this rupture of a relationship with God. That's why we're being invited back to God, right? Because we lost our relationship with God. You have this rupture in relationships with each other. You all know it. You're married. If you don't, you have siblings. You know the, the struggle that we have with one another, the fighting and the hiding and the accusing, the blame shifting. And then, of course, we have a ruptured relationship with this world. The world's not spinning and, and acting in accordance with how God designed it to be. We have a ruptured relationship with ourselves. We have psychological struggles. We have self-hatred. We're, sometimes it's a, just a contradiction within our souls. And ultimately, at the end of all, all that, we die. So, so we know that there's a rupture with God. And, and so God, in his mercy, establishes a covenant. God's going to chase us with mercy. And he's going to establish a covenant with David to bring forth a son. And this son's going to be the Messiah. He's going to raise up a kingdom. And he's going to put to right all that we put to wrong. And so he's going to restore and renew all creation. That's what they were hoping for. That's the one we're looking for. But did Solomon fill the bill? No, he didn't fill the bill at all. How about Hezekiah, the last son before exile? Did he fill it? No, he, he failed at the very end. And the whole nation was carted off to Babylon. So they're waiting for the son. Who's going to deliver us? Who's going to bring about that this invitation can actually go out? Well, of course, the New Testament removes all mystery, and it's Jesus Christ. Look in Matthew. You don't have to turn there now. You can look later. Write Matthew 1, 1. Boom. Jesus, the son of David. They see Jesus as the son that God promised, that Jesus was coming. Even the angels, when they announce the birth, they say this. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. It's pretty clear. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. Do you see what's happening? Jesus is the one now that has come to fulfill the promise, the covenant with David that God made, and now he comes. Now, here's what's beautiful. When Jesus comes to begin ministry, what does he do? He acts like a host. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Jesus is now out inviting people just like his father. Or in John 6, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or John 7, 
Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Jesus is now inviting people because in Christ the covenant's been established. And we saw the covenant in Isaiah 53. It's in his blood. So now the invitation can go out. God can now invite you who are unworthy because he is so worthy. Your invitation, my invitation, is grounded on Christ and Christ alone. The sufficiency of this covenant filler makes God able to just open up the invitation to all people. That's why we can invite all people to now come. Jesus in Hebrews opened a new and living way to the Father. Now, what's remarkable about this passage is in verse 5, and I can't speak to it today, but he says, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. That clearly references, I imagine, David in some respects, but it also looks at Jesus and now to us, the servants of Jesus. So it's a clear call for missions. It's a clear call to go to unreached peoples. It's a clear call that we now are the ones who are inviting people. We are the ones inviting people to come to Christ. That's what we do. Because now we're the church. God displays his wisdom through us. In fact, you know, it says, and nations that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. In other words, what people see of God in you is what draws them like a magnet. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, what do you, what's, there's something different about you. There's something unique about you, the way you handle trial or the way you handle your marriage. Or there's something unique about your marriage. What is it? I want to know. Well, it's the grace of God emanating out of your life or emanating out of your marriage that draws people. That's what he's speaking about here. So the nature of this invitation is the sheer grace of God calling all people, those, even right now, if you've been pursuing and lusting after 14 different things, you can turn to the side and move to him. Those of you who feel so unworthy, you are, as I am. But the, the, the nature of the invitation is grounded on Christ, the fulfiller of the covenant, that he is so worthy. So that's the invitation that goes out. Well, how do we respond? Well, look with me at 6 and 7. How do we respond to this? Or as one friend asked me once, how do I get right with God? That's what they asked. Well, 6 and 7 answer that question. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is the feast, the compassion and pardon of God. But there's two things we have to do. So how do we respond? Well, we respond by seeking the Lord. Uh, to seek is to intentionally look for. This idea of seeking and calling are kind of parallel to each other. Calling is praying, asking, God, please deliver me. So, so there is a move from the sinner that he has to turn and begin to seek God. He has to intentionally pursue him. It's the same thing in 1 and 2, come to me and, and come by and eat. These are all expressions, really, of what I would say the New Testament speaks of as faith. It's, it's faith moves us where we can't be moved. You know, we, we don't have the resources. We move in faith to God. To, to seek God is to appeal to God for mercy. It's you appealing to God for forgiveness and reconciliation. To seek him intentionally. To call upon him. Now, you know, you notice um, that there is a bit of an urgency implied in the text here. I mean, he says here, while he may be found. He says, um, 
while he's near. You know, there seems to be a window of opportunity here that, that God doesn't just stay forever, that this offer doesn't exist forever. There's an urgency here. I, I want to I say this, that it's not as if God's passing by and you've got to say it at the right time or you may not hear it. Uh, but I think we don't want to slip into the sin of presumption, that I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And you never get to it. There's an urgency for those of you who need to seek God, there's an urgency to it. There's a window. There's a time frame that you need to be sensitive to. Not in fear of, but you need to be sensitive to it. But it's more than seeking God. Many of us seek God in times of trouble. Many of us look to God, we turn to God in times of trouble. But we forget the second part in verse 7. It's to forsake the way you've been on. It's to turn aside from the path you've walked. This is what we would call repentance. This repentance, when we think about a repentant person, it doesn't mean he's just, I'm such a jerk and I'm so evil and I'm so terrible. It's not some self-beating process. And, and repentance in the Bible isn't simply, I really felt bad that I did that a long time ago. It may involve that, but it isn't that comprehensively. What repentance is, is repentance is, a, is a, just what he says, a turning aside. I've been living this way but now I'm going to live this way. It's a change of life. You kind of see it in 8 and 9 when he says, if, if you look in 8 and 9, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And he says here, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. You know, th- those thoughts that we have, those earthly thoughts, forsake those, turn from those. This is a clear, a radical, comprehensive call for change, that we need to change. And by the grace of God, you do change. You seek him and repent. They're together. Now, here's the blessing that you have that is in the second part of seven. You're going to receive the infinite kindness of God, the compassion of God. You know, a lot of times we're not very compassionate with ourselves. God is infinitely compassionate, compassionate to those who turn by faith and repent. He He will hear you. He will grant forgiveness to you. He will grant full, abundant pardon you may feel absolutely unworthy of pardon. But God says it, full and abundant pardon. That's the blessing. Let that just soak in your soul for a minute. Many times after preaching something like this, people will say, yeah, I just can't see how God can forgive me. And I know how that feels existentially. But we have to take the feeling that we have and confront it with the truth that God has just said. And you have to make a choice. Do I want to believe in what God says? Or do I want to believe in how I feel? And what's going to get the order of the day? He said, abundant pardon. But how do you know that you've sought him? And how do you know that you have repented? What is the evidence of that? What will it look like? Well, he tells us in here, he says, that your soul may live. And and the word for soul is heart. And when we speak about heart in the scripture, the heart is not, yeah, he's full of heart. He's a big-hearted guy. It's not simply emotions. It's will. It's intellect and emotions. It's really the essence of who you are. It's your fundamental being. It's everything that you are, what you think, what you feel, what you love. And and what he says is that if you turn to God, your soul will live. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you new dispositions. He'll give you new directions. He'll give you new affections that this is the evidence that we've been saved, that we're not continuing to feast on the things of the world. The heart that has been changed to pursue God will not be satisfied on the things of the world, but only on the bread and the wine and the milk that God offers. It's not going to be satisfied 
You may enjoy the things of the world, and, and, and they may be useful in lifting your eyes to the greatness of the one who gives all things, all good things. But, but that's the change in direction. That's the change in heart we're speaking about. It's not adding more stuff. It's not saying, well, I'm, I've been reading the Bible and I've been doing this. Those are good, right, appropriate things. They're means of grace to teach us about the greatness of God. But that's not the evidence. You can have people coming in the faith. They adopt a lot of the customs of Christianity. But they have the same passions. They have the same need to control. They have the same lusts and the same problems. They never go away. That's the problem. Doing things doesn't evidence You've sought God and repentant. It's the change of the heart. In fact, A.W. Tozer says it this way. Uh, certain moral changes will take place immediately in the life of the new convert. A moral revolution without will accompany the spiritual revolution that has occurred within. As the evangelists tell us, even the cat will know it when the head of the house is converted. And the grocer will know it too. There's that inward change that just moves outward. Or as Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar, says, it's not perfection, but it's infection. So you are infected with a divine presence, and God begins to move you. And so it's evidenced outwardly, but it begins inwardly. That's the, that's the evidence. So for you today, when you think about this, responding to this invitation, I've explained the nature of it, I've explained the ground of it, I'm speaking to you about how to respond to it. So... so so I would speak to the, to the person here that may not be religious. You may uh, only thinking about religion, or perhaps you're struggling, actually, and you don't think you can come to God because of all that you've done. I, I hope I've, I've put some of that to rest in that, in that God is inviting the filthy, the hungry, the depressed, the broken to turn to him by faith, by faith with repentance. Inviting to contrite your soul, to humble yourself before God. It's not up to you. You don't have to strive to appeal to God anymore. It's not up to you. It rests on God. You know, interesting parallel, Buddha's last words that are recorded, Buddha's last words were strive always for salvation. Jesus' last words, it is finished. It's accomplished. It's done. I did it. I did it all. Every ounce that needed to be lifted, I lifted. You rest in me. That's why the unworthy can come. But I would also say to the religious here, and you know, it's funny with religion, we can tend to get off rail in one of two ways. Those of us who consider ourselves religious, we get off rail by either making more of the commands than the promises, the commands are where we focus. You've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. And so we find that our approach to God is rooted by what we have done. Instead of resting in the promises of God, we're really trying to make sure, cross every T, dot every I on the commands. And I would call you to repent of that. I would call you to repent of what we would call your religiosity. That you're trying to approach God, so with Christ and the cross there as the ground of the covenant that God established, you're trying to almost form a new covenant with God based upon how you're performing. And you're just getting in despair and frustration because you cannot do it. And so I would ask you to repent of that. That's how you would approach God. But on the other side is the guy who focuses on the promises and doesn't even fool about the commands. He's just worried about the promises. Hey, God's gracious. God's forgiven. God's all love. He loves me. I can do anything I want. God's forgiven me. 
A lot of time you hear this with people that say, well, yeah, you know, they're having a life that's just, it's becoming a train wreck. And but I prayed when I was 12 years old. I asked Jesus in my heart, and, and I have a relationship. I have people in my family that buy this. Does that, is that saving faith? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. To make much of the promises and to ignore the commands is to miss the point. Now, am I going to resolve the tension for you? No way. No way. Do both. Do both. Love both. Love the commands as they express God's will and walk in them righteously. But boy, pray the promises, love the promises, rest on the promises, go to bed reading promises. They both are in operation, and I can't resolve the two. I just say yes to both. And so the, the one who is walking with spiritual license because they're overweighting the promises, ignoring the commands, repent, repent of your sins. Because if you ha- are resting on a decision that you made, this is what we call decisionism, people rest on a decision made rather than resting on Christ and then seeing the outgrowth of that rest be in holiness. It's incredibly important. Okay, let me just finish up with this beautiful passage here. So I've talked to you about the nature of the invitation. I've talked to you about the ground of it being the covenant in Christ. And I've talked to you about responding to the covenant, to seek him and to repent. And then thirdly, this is the assurance. This is where God, I think, in, in such gentleness, kind of draws us to turn to him, to follow him. Remember now, he's talking to a people in exile. So all these promises are to a people. It's like if they just took us as a church and they put us in some North Korean prison and then all of a sudden... I'm not going to read Isaiah 55 to you. And you're like, really? When's that coming? I can't believe these things. It's almost to a people, can I really believe I can just approach God? Can I really go to him? Will he really give me abundant pardon? Will he really turn to me with compassion? Look, I'm in a prison in North Korea. Can I really believe it? Well, he tells us, yeah, we can believe it. Look at 8 and 9. 8 and 9, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the, high, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. What's he saying here? Well, I think it does look back to 6 and 7 about the nature of why we need to repent and that our ways are not like his. But I think it looks forward. I think it looks forward to saying, you won't fully understand this. I'm asking you to believe this, but you won't fully understand all that I'm doing. Now listen, we are a people of the telescope. When this was written, there was no telescope. So they saw the heavens up there, and they looked pretty far, and they looked pretty amazing. And yeah, they looked, but we see some stars, but there's a huge chasm up there. Well, we're people of the Hubble telescope. So now we know that, that the stars go for billions and billions of light years away. And there are billions and billions of galaxies that go billions and billions of light years away. So now we are without excuse to see how amazing it is. On when he says, my ways are not your ways, you're right. And there is a massive difference between the two. And, and he's saying here, you don't see how this is going to be done. You don't see how this Christ is going to come back in glory and power. You don't see how I'm going to get you out of these dilemmas. You don't see how I'm going to save you. You don't see how I can forgive you. All the mysteries that creep up in Scripture that people say, ah, I really need to have these, an- these questions answered before I can really believe. They'll never get them answered because they're unanswerable in this life. And he's saying, Trust me, my ways are not your ways. My ways are transcendent, they're glorious, they're beautiful, they're effective, they're great. And so there's a certain sitting back and enjoying the mystery rather than being confronted by it. 
And then secondly, not just his ways are different, but his word is different than our word. Look again at 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow comes down, it accomplishes watering the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread for the eater. Then he draws the comparison. He says, so as my word shall go out of my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but accomplish that which I purpose it to do. So in other words, the words of God that I'm giving to you will be effective. They're effective because they come out of his mouth, not my mouth. Many things I say may be worthless. Nothing that comes out of the mouth of God is worthless. In fact, when he says, let there be light, there wasn't a three-week delay. There was boom, light. There was light form because he said it. And this is the preacher's crutch right here. When I preach, I can see you. It's funny. And there are some people that are looking at the light and some people looking out the window. Everybody's tuned in now. I get it. But, <laughs> but you have people fiddling with stuff. I can see it. I can see when your eyes get heavy. I can see it. I mean, my eyes are not that great, but I can see it. You know, the first five rows now are going to be cleared out. <laughs> the reality of it is, this is what I trust. I don't trust in the eloquence or the explanation. It has to be that God's word will not return void. So when we break it, as imperfectly as we do, the, the, the root of our hope as a leadership team is God will take the word and he will accomplish everything he wants to do with it. And it's going to be an aroma of life to those who are living and being saved, and it's going to be an aroma of death to those who are perishing. It's a frightening thing to preach. It's a frightening thing, because this word is going to accomplish it. Let me explain to you one story just to drive this point home. And this is also what is, I think, a rocket for missions, because you take a word to a people that we don't know and don't know this. God's word will accomplish it. His name is going to go out to all the nations. It's going to happen. But, but John Flavel was this Puritan preacher, English preacher, back in the 17th century. Great preacher, a good pastor too, really good pastor. And he preached and he served among his people. And he, he, lived, a, he lived a good long life and he died. Uh, but, but, but those in his congregation, of course, uh, were, were outliving him. And, and one man, when he was 86 years old, 86 years old, he was sick, he was dying. And to his mind came something that John Flavel had said 80 years before in a sermon. He hadn't thought about it once between then and then. But God brought it to the man's mind. Remember the truth of Christ that he was preaching, and he believed. And he knew he was converted after 80 years. The word of God never returns empty. It'll always accomplish it. You can trust this word. And then third and last, that he's inducing us to come, believe him, to seek him, and to repent. Look in 12 and 13, for you shall go out and join, be led forth with peace. Now he's speaking to us here. And then he's saying the mountains and the hills will break into singing and the trees will clap their hands. And thorns will be transformed into cypresses and briars will come up as myrtles. So what he's saying here is this. God is inviting us. He says, you don't want to miss this banquet because here's what's going to happen. You're going to be changed. Now you notice, be led forth and go forth. That's language of exile being broken. It's the language that Moses would have used. I'm going to lead the people out. We're going to go forth out of Egypt. So it's, it's deliverance from exile is what it is. He's saying he's going to change us. 
Can you imagine the joy of being released from exile? If you're in exile for all of your known life, and now you're led to freedom, can you not imagine the joy? The satisfaction? He says that we'll, we'll be overwhelmed with joy and led forth in peace. Why peace? Well, peace because the relationships have been reconciled. Folks, think about Christmas time. Christmas time is a time of great family consternation. All the disharmony in our family seems to well up at Christmas time. It's unbelievable. There, everybody's got that uncle. Everybody's got somebody in the family that, you know, there he goes again. And, and the conflict comes up. I can't believe we've got to spend this long at your parents' house and blah, 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 blah. This is not a personal testimony for me at all. <laughs> the reality of it is that we're going to be led forth in peace. He is picturing a day before us where our relationships will be in harmony and joy. Christ will set all things wrong to right and particularly in the relationships that we have with one another. That, that is to be a draw for us. Yes, I want that day. Yes, I'm going to come to you, God, because I can't reconcile my relationships. You must. But not just our relationships. Look at creation. Creation begins to sing. Romans 8 speaks about the creation groans for redemption. Creation wants to be changed and saved. And you see them with this jubilant song as they're delivered. But notice... The thorns. In Genesis 3.17, the thorns were part of the fall. Now the thorns are gone. Why? Because the curse has been removed. Why? Because Christ has borne the curse. This is the hope we have. God has given us, think about the nature of the invitation. God inviting us to feast on him. The, the ground of the invitation is on Jesus Christ, not on anything you've done or haven't done. That's why he can invite all of us. And then this invitation is responded to by, by faith and repentance. They both must be in operation. Not just at the beginning of the decision, but throughout life. And then, of course, he draws us to this great joy by giving us these promises. To a people in exile, that would be profound. But the reality for the Christian is you are in exile right now because you're apart from him. But the exile will be finished one day either by him returning or by you returning to him. But it's a day we long for. Remember, Jonathan Edwards says, when the pilgrim is at the end of his journey, he never grieves because he gets to see the one who saved him. Let's pray, and I'll just start. I'd ask you to pray briefly, loudly in a crowd like this, and, um, but briefly so that others may pray. So if you have long verses, they're wonderful. If you have a long prayer, I appreciate that. But let's, let's just speak more briefly before the Lord so others can participate. And then Jack will close us in just a few moments. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in this invitation. Father, I pray that those among us that want to respond, that they will. That they'll come forward after the service, that they'll just appeal to you for mercy and grace because of the great work that the Savior has done. And I pray this in the name of Jesus.